This episode is brought to you by Forney Industries, official sponsor of Faction 46 and Nice Motorsports Truck Series teams. Forney offers versatile welding and plasma cutting machines, along with a full line of metalworking accessories for beginners, do-it-yourselfers, and professionals. Forney has everything you need for your next metalworking project. Shop for these top-of-the-line products at ForneyIND.com, that's F-O-R-N-E-Y-I-N-D.com, or at an authorized Forney dealer near you. Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at PolePositionMag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item, backed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. Hey y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They yeah. had been, they had been yeah. around the block a time or two. What's so, the first deal they built, I bet? No, no, you know, you could, I think they were, they had, the, the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped-up car, and he, he complained that the government gave him these piece-of-crap, cheapo cars and that, that were really no match, but he thought he was doing pretty good. And then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappeared. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And it, it, as he said, it was a game of chicken and I was a chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually he was the guy who, who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steal when Junior got tangled up in a, in a barbed wire fence. <laughs> So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Bought Podcast. Hey everybody, this is Rick Houston, host of the Scene Vault Podcast. Our listeners have probably noticed a little bit of a hiccup when it comes to the distribution of the show in the last few weeks. I think we've got those issues sorted out now, and we're going to keep on rocking and rolling just like we always have. That being said, please make sure that you're still following and subscribe to the show on whatever podcast platform you listen to us on. 
I don't want you to miss out on a single thing that we've got coming up in the next few weeks and months. So thank you for all your support and encouragement and enjoy the show. Hello, my name is Rick Houston and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. Presented by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's racing showplace. I'm playing pinball, the bar is to my left. You know, you hear the kerfuffle, I turn, and there's my mother in the door. We were ridiculed for this and that. Well, I can still go out and play hockey. I can still go out and play football. Most of them guys are, you know, fat and gray and bald now. And I can go out and play music. So now Hillman's on the radio. Andy, what do we got here? He's in the parking lot. Well, we're assuming the parking lot was the infield. Well, can he drive it in? No, I mean like Route 20. The day NASCAR and all of us associated in any way with NASCAR forget its past, that's the day we don't have any future. Hello, everyone. I'm Steve Wade. And my name is Rick Houston, and welcome back to the Scene Vault podcast presented by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's racing showplace and a track that truly cares about NASCAR history. Steve, I think, I'm not sure about this. I think that I might have mentioned over the course of doing this podcast that I would be interested in driving the pace car at some racetrack somewhere. Rick, I don't recall you ever saying that before. Well, you know what? That's a fact. I would be interested in driving the pace car somewhere. With that being said, my debut at Lonesome Pine Motorsports Park is scheduled for March 18th, which just so happens to be five weeks and six days from right now. Well, Rick, let me tell you this. That race is going to be a sellout now that you've said that for sure. People are going to flock to Lonesome Pine. Up in beautiful Coburn, Virginia, my Indeed. mama's hometown. Indeed, I've been there. You know what? I have not told you this part. Oh. Yet, because I want to get your reaction live okay. on the air. I have been contacted by another major motorsports facility in the United States about the possibility of driving the pace car for their event. Really? I yes. don't believe it. I don't believe it. What track is it? I can't say to ask. Oh, I can't can. say yet because it's not signed, sealed, or delivered. It's not a done deal yet. But a friend of mine and a friend of yours, somebody that you know, somebody that you respect, has been in touch with me about driving the pace car for one of their special events. Well, I don't respect them anymore. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on now. You're going to be right, riding Rick. shotgun, man. All right, You're going to be riding shotgun right along with me. You'll be my navigator. Turn left. Turn left. <laughs> <laughs> With that major bombshell out of the way, let's get to introducing this week's episode. In the second installment of our Larger Than Life interview with Steve Dusneski, the Dues talks about his love for music, his purple carpeted toolbox. What? <laughs> yeah. 
His purple carpeted toolbox. You heard me right. All right. His adventurous move south to seek his fame and fortune in big time automobile racing and one of the most infamous wrecks in NASCAR history. Jimmy Air Horton's tumble over the wall at Talladega. It didn't look like a tumble to me. It looked like to me he just sailed over that wall. I tell you what, that was a heart stopping moment. Then in our second segment, we're going to do things a little bit differently. Rather than paging through the July 29th, 1993 edition of Winston Cup Scene for our issue of the week segment, we are going to go back through our own personal memory banks and discuss the 1993 Die Hard 500 at Talladega. Now, I don't know about you, Steve, but that is one of the craziest days that I have ever experienced at a racetrack just when you thought that you had a handle on what was going on something else would happen oh i was in a tizzy rick during that one because so much was happening i was trying to figure out who was going to write what and where we're going to put it in the paper and make sure everything got done but it was just one thing after another listeners if you possibly can please consider supporting this podcast financially you can do so on a monthly basis at patreon.com slash the same vault podcast. Or if you would prefer to do a one-time show of support, you can do that via paypal.me slash the same vault podcast or venmo.com slash the same vault podcast. This show is not possible without that kind of support. Your encouragement means the world to me personally. It has kept us going, but also that, kind of financial support on Patreon and PayPal and Venmo that helps too. And it would not be possible to do this show without it. So please consider it. And also just as a reminder, this show is not affiliated in any way with American city business journals, owner of the same brand. You are a racer, but you're also an accomplished musician. Did you take lessons on any particular instrument, or did you just pick it up along the way? I don't see myself as accomplished, but um, in, I think it was fifth grade in the public school system, which, I mean, it's uh, that's another thing I don't want to really get into how sad it is when i was a kid my school district this is in chicopee had a band they had like three different bands before you got two or three before you got to high school you had a beginner's band for like fifth and sixth grade an intermediate band then you had a band mostly like seventh and eighth graders who were pretty good they just weren't in high school yet so i started and um the only thing i wish i'd done different I'm, uh, I started on a saxophone, uh, an alto saxophone. Like, you know, my parents rented it from the music yeah. store. And um, you go once a week, you get your lesson in school. Because I, um, I grew up liking 50s music and stuff. And if you listen to, like, a lot of that late 50s rock and roll, there's a saxophone in there, which, like, coasters and stuff. You might be familiar with sounds like yeah. Charlie Brown and yeah. Yakety Yak and stuff like that. And that was actually a guy, King Curtis, Curtis Oosley. He was um, 
Uh, yeah, I think he was from Dallas or Fort Worth, Texas. But, you know, living in New York, uh, where most of that stuff was recorded in New York City back in the... So I wanted to be a saxophone player. Because my buddy, one year older than me, his father had forced him into taking keyboard lessons. So he had a small organ in the house. So we, you know, we're going to we're gonna do it. And uh, you just start out like that. So then I did start taking private lessons. And the only thing I wish... Wish they had had me on a tenor sax, which is what what you'll see me playing ninety nine percent of the time now. It's bigger, takes more air, but I had asthma and all of that stuff. So my parent, my mother didn't think I'd have enough air and yeah, la yeah. la la la. So I did have lessons on the saxophone off and on, and then you know, then you're in the high school band, which we were ridiculed for this and that. Well, I can still go out and play hockey. I can still go out and play football. Most of them guys are, you know, fat and gray and bald now. And I can go out and play music. They yeah. can't do that. So uh, getting uh, that was on the saxophone, high school, lessons in high school. But I had so many other interests because I had racing, you know, and then cars and girls. And uh, so, I, like, I, was, I never was in 110% on the saxophone at that age. And... Uh, a kid, two years younger than me in high school, he was good because he, that was his deal. He was in his room practicing it all the time, and he was a good player. Ended up in the Navy band and stuff. Good, uh, and later on, cued me in on a few things and whatnot, and then I always wanted to play harmonica. You'd see them, like, them bluesy guys, and even in the rock and roll, there was harmonica here and there and stuff. So I tried a couple times in high school, never could make it stick. And then finally, I'm like 22, three years old, picked up another harmonica, and they used to come with a little instructional thing in there to, uh, so I sat up one night till, till the break of dawn playing, uh, till I could barely play when the saints go marching in. Uh, yeah. Serious. I mean, yeah. just, yeah. Uh, 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 you know, like six hours later, I could almost do it, you know, and that's so that's how I started playing harmonica. And then I just um, started really listening to the blues and stuff like that. there's good, you know, just cool old harmonica players in that realm of music and stuff. Just little by little started, you know, banging away on that. And then about 10 years ago, started playing guitar because I just like sitting in the house playing my old country music, old country music, some uh, classic rock, stuff like that. Now, are you still in a band now? Um, I do go out with uh, Sonny Ledford on occasion. We don't, and um, I mean, like 10 years ago, we were going, we're going across the country. I've been from Brooklyn, New York to like Seattle, Washington with him. And one year, I mean, like 10, 11 years ago, I went out to Oregon like four or five times in one year. He had a, he's got a, had a huge following like in Oregon outside of, um, uh, used to play in this uh, bar in Enumclaw. It, it was cool. It was, uh, uh, what the hell is that? Uh, your, your, your fish. What's, what's the raw sushi? It's yeah. a sushi bar. With a music deal in there. <laughs> so this is like some Oriental guy owns yeah. the deal. It's just, it was just cool stuff and playing for packed crowds and stuff out there. Around here, like, no one gives a crap about us. We got our little deal, but it's uh, 
you know, it, it's it's wider than white out here. You get around the lake and it's all, you know, the it's not even the loafer. It's like the sandal crowd, the flip-flop crowd and stuff, <laughs> listening to the worst possible white people music there is. But, hey, it, it is what it is, although we do. Are playing a gig at the boatyard eats not too far from where we are now, fe- middle of February, probably the week in the Daytona or something. I think it's a Friday night show, so there shouldn't be anybody. There'll, there'll be some people there, and you know, all the girls will be there waiting for the DJ and whatnot. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I go out, I'll do a show with him now and again. The uh, last one I played with him was Bike Week in the fall at Myrtle Beach. I got other deals where sometimes someone will just call me um, a little cool little band. Uh, they're a three-piece. I hop in, makes it a four-piece, and they do a lot of the old swingy rock and roll, basically uh, the black man's music from which would have been like real late 40s, early 50s, mid-50s that the white people stole and turned into rock and roll. <laughs> so we were doing the yeah. deal once a month. At the Corkscrew in Burkdale, and then COVID came, and then did a few more, and then I had I was out of town. Went up to Richie's old hotel for um, New Year's. They they played New Year's Eve, and the place is shut down now. They've lost the lease there in Burkdale. It was a cool deal that you you know it's not your ninety nine cent drunk beer crowd wanting to hear some uh, Cole Swindell crap on, on you know. <laughs> So that's what I got there. I got another deal, and I haven't been out with them in a while. Um, I'm the only white guy in that band, and we'll go down to, like, Thirsty Beaver, which is, like, old-school country music. They're cool. And um, usually do, like, on a Sunday evening there. And um, it's cool because, like, these young people don't realize that you really can – Okay, maybe you ain't going to listen to it in your car, but this stuff will get you going. I mean, I've had some pretty outrageous nights in there with you, you get the crowd fired up and stuff to, to decent old music, you know? So good racing or good music, you have to pick one. Oh, man. I, Which would you pick? I, I, I guess I'd have to go... Music, in the sense that um, I'm I'm on a desert island. <laughs> I can make a bongo drum and and, <laughs> and sing my old country songs to myself. I'm not gonna have a race car on a on, on a deserted yeah. island or something. So that's the only reason I say that. It's um, you know, I like a, the racing. I spend more time now. And uh, Billy Nasowitz does the same thing. He's got all kinds of old pictures cataloged. He'll be on there printing. You know, he burns through printer ink, printing out. It's just, I like the older stuff. Um, there's always something pop, like a cool picture here, you know. Maurice Petty changing the right front tire, yeah. you know, go with, with his Wellington boots on. Just, yeah. It's just so cool. Um, I get a lot of that comes across uh, my Facebook Um I get these old Formula One deals come. And, man, like the Formula One cars from the early, mid-70s, they were so beautiful. Like the John Player Lotuses yeah. and, you know, absolute death traps, but just... Yeah. Well, besides they, that. They, right. <laughs> and, and a lot of sad stories in Formula One. 
And I was able to do a bunch of work for a guy that um, he's connected to, like, Emerson Fittipaldi and stuff. So he and just – you could talk with him. It was just it, – it's – um. It strikes people that, like, someone like me would know about Formula One. And I'm not an expert by any stretch, and especially the newer stuff. I don't keep up with it, you know, to the nth degree. But that goes back to when you were six, seven, eight years old. You didn't have pull your phone out. You you know, you had whatever you could get in the print media or this or that or – so on ABC Wide World Sports, you were going to get the Monaco race – two months later or whatever but yeah, that's yeah. how and that's how you learn and you paid attention to stuff like that you know i remember like a, a news blurb when josh and rent got killed and stuff like and so you you know you didn't i wasn't fully connected to it but you knew this guy got killed that guy got killed and uh so i like my old formula one pictures stuff like that all right, so of all the things that your buddy Rick Menner said that I should ask you about, <laughs> he said that I had to ask you about your toolbox with the purple carpeted drawers. All right. So what about your purple carpeted toolbox? I think I might have been somewhere around the sixth grade or something, maybe not even that old, fifth or sixth grade, so... My father's gas station on Saturday evenings, they would pull in, and I was able to, I knew where this truck was. I've got the truck back. Had two tote trucks, but they usually use, yeah, they use this one. They would pull it in one of the service bays and put um, two of the cloth mechanic fender uh, covers on it and play poker so you had two guys on each fender and two guys across the hood six people um our fine police officers used to come in and sometimes partake in a probably for friendly i don't you know i don't (laughs) i don't know you know how the money changed hands and whatnot so my job was to um keep the beer flowing out of the we had a coke machine filled with beer like the uh, in the storage bin and whatnot my grandfather actually because that was a daily deal too there he would have uh, you got them little round keys go in and that springs a deal out and then you spin it out he used to actually wear the threads off of that and we'd have to go to the coke plant in springfield and get the replacement part but anyhow i'm just busking the beer man back hey man and these guys throwing me dollars and fives and stuff like that. So, and then typical, the phone starts ringing. It's my mother, you know. So, you, you always, your father, my father would always have someone else answer the phone. And then, and, and she, you know, finally, like a third time, he'd have to get on there. Uh, ten minutes, ten minutes, honey, ten minutes. And I'm just doing my job, man. You know, just sticking this money yeah. in my pocket. So we leave there and we stop at the bar. The Champlain Club, which isn't even there anymore. They moved the traffic pattern and knocked this old building down. And uh, all they had to do, they like, they give me some quarters, and you get that fountain coal out of the deal. Now they're at the bar, and the pinball machine, if you were at the pinball machine, your back was to the door, and then a the little bathroom was right next to it. So I went in the bathroom, and I straightened all the money out. 
They had like 105 or 110 dollars, which at that age is like, you know, I'd be like having 5,000 today. I, I actually would have to do the math on it and see what it really is worth. But it's like, you, at that age, you never had 100 dollars in your hand. Now, how old were you? Maybe eleven or something. Okay. So, you know, I got a hundred dollars in my pocket, man. This is like, man, I, I'm flush, you know. And yeah. I got now, I got it all wrapped up right back in the pocket, going playing. Sure enough, the phone's ringing and whatnot. And I believe this is one of the times because if it weren't, the next thing, my mother is in the doorway of the bar. Hello. Well, yeah, you hear the guys that because the bar, I'm playing pinball, the bar is to my left. So I turn, you know, you hear the kerfuffle. I turn, and there's my mother in the door. And I'm surprised. Yeah, so I'm surprised she didn't scoop me out. And uh, so shortly thereafter, I leave with my dad, you know, it's like a couple mile and a half, if that, into the neighborhood. And he's like, yeah, good, you know. Good, he won the last pot of the night, so he's like, "Yeah, good, good thing I won." He said, "I come out all right. I come out about sixty or seventy bucks ahead." So I said, "Well, that's good, but man, I'm like a hundred ahead," <laughs> which I should have never said nothing. As a, so we get home, come through the side door, and she's waiting there with the frying pan, yelling at him, yelling at me to go to bed that I should know better that not to be around that, and kind of like you're thinking, "Mom, just." just that's it's like Disneyland for me, you know, going yeah. to the bar with your dad and all them cuckoos and stuff. And I made a hundred, which I didn't tell her that. But is just that, ten bucks. Yeah, oh, well, man. Was, <laughs> so man, I got in my room and I hit it. Like, and um, I hear them arguing, and he, see you don't do it with the kid. Da, 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 and the old man, half a buzz on, tells her to leave me alone. I'm smarter than the both of them. I made a hundred bucks tonight. Well, next thing, my door gets busted down. She's in there, rakes my room out, and finds the money. It's not how you earn your money. Takes the money. So I'm like, well, like stealing from me is makes it any better. <laughs> I, I worked for it, you know. I yeah. hustled the beer, cleaned up, kept the yeah. stuff right. Yeah. So. <laughs> A week later, and this is how the stuff was back in the day, the department store shows up and puts down this purple carpet, wall-to-wall carpet in our little, you know, one, this is a three-bedroom, one-bath deal. Your your bathroom is just this strip of, you know, yeah. not like nowadays. So puts down this purple carpet. You know, you got to be shitting me, you know, it's my money. That's what paid for it. So all them years later, now you're a teenager and stuff, and then there's that purple carpet, and finally, what a damn carpet, you know, it was rotting out the floor underneath. So when they came and redid that, I took some of the purple carpet, and I cut it up for drawer liners for one of my toolboxes. And to this day, I still have, like, Three of them strips in it was I started out first toolbox my dad ever gave me was a center section deal and that's what I started with and I have the purple carpet in there. I was wondering <laughs> if we were going to get around to the purple carpet. <laughs> oh, it's the... How did you wind up moving south? Well, you're racing at Riverside Park Speedway. Uh, you know, you're in Massachusetts and 
I didn't really know anybody, but you heard of this guy went down, this guy. And you know they're down there and stuff, but you're just like, well, I don't know how this works or nothing. Talking to some people and stuff. And I remember one guy, because I'm thinking again, I really should have. I came down here right around this time of year, somewhere in the middle of January, 1993. But I'd been thinking about it since like 86, 87. And I really wish I'd have got down here, 87, 88. Just there's a little more to the curve of like some, to me, some really cool stuff, cool cars, cool people. So I, I can't complain, but uh, you're just thinking about I'm talking to was a guy, Kenny Meisenhelder, used to film videos at Riverside. And many, many years ago, he raced on the Grand National Circuit. And we're in the bar one night, and he's like, Stevie, look around. And he pointed out the crowd. He says, you see him, you see him. He said, they'll be here forever. He says, if you go and it don't work out, you can always come back. You're going to fit right back in here with pointed out like you know yeah. three or four people i'm like yeah you're right so i'm getting a little more confidence well i don't even own a car so i got two tow two nice tow trucks i, I had bought and paid for and whatnot but um sure enough well one of my bosses at the phone not the phone company that was a previous job uh the bus company must have been his son uh probably did something silly cars at the um one of the gentlemen's clubs. <laughs> so some of my Stafford and Thompson friends uh, might be familiar with the Magic Lantern. <laughs> okay. think it's a, think it's in Munson. And so I'm working for the bus line. It's hard for me to guess. I tell my dad, hey, there's a car sitting there, whatever. If it, you know, take the truck, one of the trucks. If it looks worth grabbing, grab it. If not, grab it and we'll scrap it. So it's a Ford Tempo, white Ford Tempo, and the kid, he must have been out there doing donuts or something, blew a half shaft out of it. So I pop a half shaft in it, and I'm good to go. Now I got a car, and I'm running around on repair plates. For, for, uh, you know, they're like a variation of a dealer tag. And um, got up my courage a little bit, so I was talking to Robbie Bouchard who is Ronnie's son. I was friendly. I did race and raced to build him a car years ago. Was racing with him and stuff, and I called him. La, la. So I took a ride out to his house one night, seeing what, you know, was going on, this and that. Well, Kenny was maybe on the verge of a deal. Yeah, everybody's on the verge of a deal, as you, yeah. you know. We all know that, you know, for many years now. So, I'm like, a night or two later, I just said, screw it, and I packed up a... Uh, my little New York Giants ni nylon uh, duffel bag and a paper bag with some clothes. And I just drove off in and I left like 2, 3 in the morning driving into a half-ass blizzard and whatnot. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, I'm going to be in the ditch in New Haven. Yeah, yeah I'm going to be like 70 miles from the house and the, and the dream's over, you know. But I made it through that and it just I just started driving. I was going to stay originally with a friend of mine who was uh, working for the phone company in Richmond. I was going to spend some time there because he had a friend of a friend that knew Junie Dunleavy. And said, yeah. well, maybe I can just be, you know, the friend of a friend in part. I never stopped. I just drove it in, got off the highway in China Grove or um, uh, Kannapolis. I don't know, you know, if it, this is where it's at. I didn't even know where I was. You know, you got to, there's no phone, no nothing back then. I'm like, I think I might have had a probably had a map with me and whatnot and just started 
banging away. Like I and had a job the end of the first day I was in town. It was like a stray dog, you know. Where at? Was a privateer's name is Ralph Munzer. So Ralph was originally Massachusetts guy. I was talking to Kenny Bouchard, and uh, Ralph come in. And Ralph was painting and whatnot. You know, there's a lot, a lot of privateer work back then, doing this, that, Arca cars, this, that, whatever. And uh, d- 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 took me home with him. <laughs> Followed. I don't even know where I am now because like now it's dark. And then we would leave his house in the morning when it was dark, get home when it's dark. So I didn't even know where I was, like literally. I'm like sitting there looking at my map, figuring out where I am, which is like they just brought a stranger into their house and stuff. But I did a lot of work for them and whatnot. But, you you know, that this one thing leads to the next and then there's a lot of stuff I don't even care to talk about. (laughs) I had $600 in my pocket and... He was going to pay me $50 a day, and, well, you know, uh, which would have been 350 a week. You're working seven days a week. So sometimes you got it, sometimes you didn't, sometimes, you know, no biggie. And you just finally, months later, on to the next, couple months later, on to something else, and this is how I made it happen. So how did you wind up as Jimmy Horton's crew chief? Because you- I, I wasn't Jimmy Horton's crew chief. That's that's told Mike Hillman Sr. was Jimmy Horton's crew chief. And everybody gets this story wrong, you know? So uh, on the shuffle here, la, 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 a good friend of mine, Andy Johnson, another product of Riverside Park, huge, hugely talented fabricator and whatnot, still doing stuff to this day in a building in Kannapolis. But um, he was working for Hillman over there at Active Racing. They were in the back of um, Jimmy Spencer used to own it. It's, uh, now it's some hot rod shop or something. This is at the drag strip. So they bring me by, and I go to uh, start doing some stuff there. So then I go to Michigan. I'm not, like, there full-time yet or nothing. I go to Michigan with them because they got the Arca car and the Cup car. So they just needed some hands. Well... I get to Michigan with them and what, and, you know, they got a good chance of winning the ARCA race and stuff. So it's like they're spending more time on the ARCA car, and it's like me and another guy just taking care of the cup car and stuff. And I'm like, holy crap, man, this this is it. This <laughs> this is the big leagues now, you know? Yeah. But they're, they're shuffling between two cars and whatnot. So, um, they hey, you ever gas a car? I'm like, well, hell no, you know? <laughs> Racing street stocks, you know, we're putting it in five gallons at a time. And uh, I says, but, you know, with some practice, I'm sure I, I could figure it out. She said, well, you'll have plenty of practice in the ARCA race. <laughs> <laughs> That's how it started. I mean, no lie, you know. Oh, you know, gas all over the place. But they broke the motor in the ARCA car. And then, they, you know, I don't remember exactly what we did and made the show and stuff. And, and it, it, at the time, cars were getting sent home. So you're like a small one-car part-time deal. Making the show was a big deal in 93. So that's how I got started with Active. Mike Hillman took me in, and I actually ended up as a full-time employee there and whatnot. So Okay, so you weren't... Jimmy Horton's crew chief. I was not. But you were working for him. I was working the, for active racing. The yep. day that he flew out of the ballpark at Talladega. 
Yeah. So. What do you remember about that day? Um, my buddy Andy was spotting, and uh, we're just in the pack of cars in the draft, you know. So now I'm at t- so this is my second, well, Winston Cup race ever, you know, like man, Talladega. So. Way they go, and you're just this, that, that, and the next thing. I probably didn't even have a radio, or not, because I believe I was probably going to catch Can that day, because I do. There is video of this if you want to look. It's kind of embarrassing to me, but <laughs> there is video of this deal. Um, I had a fire suit on, so I wouldn't have had a fire suit on if I didn't, you know, I, I, because I believe the crew from New Jersey was down. They had a guy that gassed and this and that. I. I pretty sure on that trip the guys from new jersey were down i could be wrong they might not have been there can't remember for sure but anyhow and and i could be wrong on this but i'm trying to think if it weren't kenny wallace or some i think someone got a flat tire up on the on the high side and that's when the checking up started so they're coming around, and we were probably, like, pitted around the middle of the front stretch there. So the pack comes around, doesn't look too harmful. And then the next thing, uh, Andy is like, go low, go low. And at that point, that's when we can't see him anymore. He just, you know, goes around the tri-oval and drops off there. And go low, go low. And then I hear, oh, shit. <laughs> which was Andy, and then the next thing I heard, so I did have a radio on, uh, next thing I heard was a grunt, like, and it must have been, because I I talked to Jimmy, you know, weeks later or something, he said, man, once it went, he just did from his sprint car days, he just pulled tight to the wheel. You put your face in the wheel and get as small as you can. And he probably hit the button on the radio. I heard one grunt, and then that was it. So uh, maybe an OF from from Andy or something. So now Hillman's on the radio. Andy, what well, what do we got here? So Andy's he's in the parking lot. Well, we're assuming the parking lot was the infield. You, you know, getting landed down. Well, can he drive it in? (laughs) Uh, uh, No. no. I mean, like Route 20. (laughs) So, wow. Horton's girlfriend, Lisa, was standing on her in a little Vic Irvin toolbox. Like, you know, like now people would be too embarrassed to have something that small. But it's what you had, and that was what you had for them days. She's standing on She faints. So me and uh, Leroy, I think it's Leroy Bull, Taylor. Leroy Taylor, he was from, like, we catch her. We get her down and get her half revived and whatnot. And then everybody ran. I, I don't know where they were running to because the car's in the parking lot outside the track, not in the infield. And I just didn't know what to do. It's my second race ever, you know? So I'm just... And didn't realize the severity of the crash. Stanley Smith had, you know, a basilar skull fracture and thankfully survived. But you don't notice. I'm just, this is a big wreck. 
And I'm from Riverside Park Speedway. Big wreck is a big fight. So I thought I had to fight someone. <laughs> I, just, I mean, it's stupid now, but yeah. like, but I'm like, well, I don't even know where to go. <laughs> Do they come to me? Do I go? So I just stayed there. Didn't know what to do. <laughs> well, so then the next thing, there's Mike Joy, pit reporter for CBS. So I look at him. He's like, hey, man, what's your name? And so I told him my name, and he looked at me funny, you know? And I said, yeah, I'm Ed Dusneski's son. Mike Joy's first job in racing, he was the tech inspector for the figure eight division at Riverside Park Speedway. And it's really, there wasn't even a tech inspector. It was just a job title and it helped get him up into the announcer's tower. And that was pretty much, and I might not have this 2AT, but this is very close to how Mike Joy started. So Mike said, okay, well, hang on a second here, man. We're going Next thing, the microphone's in my face and the camera was rolling. <laughs> I was not the crew chief. Everybody ran. Wow. So you're the only one there. I'm the only one in the pit box. <laughs> and I'm like thinking, man, I'm, I'm ready for the fight. I, you know, I was just, I didn't know no better. Still don't know no better, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's how that come about. When did you see Jimmy that day? I don't know if I've seen him that day because and this story gets all you know told wrong and this that and that because like first and foremost one i was not the crew chief we'll start there mike hillman was and mike was awesome to me man you know took me in and got me a my first actual paycheck and, and stuff like that so uh the other thing was well back then no super duper big deal you know, today you'd have to go down to the technical center and and, and let some white shirt, some white collar. Like, you know, Steve Phelps is going to look at the car. He, he wouldn't know, you know, the dipstick from the throttle or whatnot. But back then they just brought it back to the garage area. No fatalities. Um, yeah. Stanley was in rough shape, but, you know, no fatalities. Got him. So there's the car. I mean, like destroyed in um craziest thing when it when I you can watch the videos of the wreck he um he went to the bottom he got hooked in the in the right rear and it immediately barrel rolled up the track I wanted the rolls out the track because there was no catch fence there at the time a few years later the catch fence was there and it spit Ricky Craven back, back in yeah for some more action um but on the way out one of the barrel rolls as it was going over, the, the top of the car like landed on the top of the concrete and put concrete wall and literally put a crease down the whole car. I mean, like the deck lid, the cage, so like right next to, to Jimmy's head was, it, I, I mean, six inches more it would have been on on his lid, and uh, so very fortunate and whatnot. But uh, yeah, it come. Put a crease right down but it's in the now it's in the garage area and we got to get this thing home well there's no way you're gonna get it in the trailer so back then this was the infancy of this deal i think think his name was cal and he went under wheels he was one of the first ones hauling tires and wheels for these teams and he was doing it on a rollback out of concord you get them all on there strap them down so we made a deal with him 
where we took all the wheels and stuff that he was hauling, put it in our hauler, and he hauled that car back to Mooresville for us on his rollback. And it just sat there for a quite some time. Uh, had a Cy Earnhardt engine in it, so Cy come by, and he was at least wanting his cylinder heads. So I can't remember if he got the whole motor out. The motor was still in the car, but, like, you know, he could probably cut two lines and get it out. It was just laying in there. And uh, I actually had, like, the right front spindle and tire off of that, and that got lost in a move and whatnot. But uh, so the car was there. And uh, eventually the owners took it back to New Jersey and they were using it um, like at the state fair, you know, seat belt, save lives type of deal and stuff. But that, that was the story on that car. Taking the checkered flag and driving to victory lane is the goal for any racer. It tells the competition, my accomplishments resulted in a trip to the winner's circle. It's no different as a business owner, team leader, or coach. Recognizing those deserving is what we do every day at Five Star Awards and Engraving. Hi, race fans. This is Bob Laird, director of sales at Five Star and former Jackman for Buddy Arrington back in the 80s. Laser engraved and full-color corporate awards, as well as crystal, plaques, trophies, and promotional products are just some of a sample of what we offer at Five Star. With state-of-the-art equipment in our North Carolina facility, let our experienced graphic artists take you from idea to concept and ultimately the finish line. To view our beautiful and unique designs, please visit us at fivestarawards.net. The entire project can be completed online. Please reach out to me at bob.laird at fivestarawards.net, 919-954-1130. As a thank you, everyone who contacts me will receive at no charge a collection of NASCAR memorabilia featuring Richard Petty while supplies last. That's bob.laird at fivestarawards.net, 919-954-1130. This segment is brought to our listeners by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's racing show place. You cannot talk about Steve Dusneski without talking about racing. And you can't talk about dues without also discussing music. So Steve, music. What is your favorite type of music? And who are some of your favorite artists and bands from way back in the day and now? Well, I can tell you what, Rick, when I was a teenager, the English invasion had begun in the United States. And we were swarmed with British bands playing good tunes. I became a fan of The Who. I became a fan of The Stones, The Rolling Stones, and, of course, The Beatles, and The Muddy Blues as well. So those were my musical heroes during that particular point in time. Of course, soul music was also big at that time, and my wife, Margaret, was well into that. Smokey Robinson and the Miracles, you know, The Temptations, The Four Tops, she was a big fan of that. So we had diverse musical in our house. Well, I grew up in the 80s. So you can just imagine what kind of music that I listened to. And I love a lot of the Christian pop and rock from that era. Petra, the forerunner of Christian rock music. There was White Hart, Striper, Amy Grant, Michael W. Smith. And yeah, you got to throw some Charlie Daniels in there too. And Steve, if you combine Charlie Daniels and Amy Grant, 
you have one of my very best memories from high school. Well, you've got a Christian singer and Amy Grant singing with Charlie Daniels. The devil went down to Georgia. <laughs> kind of a strange mix there. All right. So just real quick, 1985 Charlie Daniels band volunteer jam in Nashville, Tennessee. It had snowed. I don't know, 15, 16 inches that week in Nashville. Well, when that happens in Nashville, it shuts the town down. Sure. They did not, however, cancel the volunteer jam. And me and my buddies, including my buddy Joe Step, had tickets. So we piled into my dad's crappy 1976 Jeep Wagoneer. <laughs> the wheel wells were rusted out. And my mom and daddy let me take that thing into downtown Nashville from the suburbs. I don't know what they were thinking, but they let me take it in those kind of conditions. I know what they were thinking, and you're lucky to be here today. Yes, I <laughs> am. <laughs> well, to make a long story short, Amy Grant was at the Volunteer Jam. Now, they did not release the guest list beforehand. That was always a surprise. That was always a part of the allure of the Volunteer Jam. But Amy Grant was there. And I was in love with Amy Grant. <laughs> and in that great big arena, well, let's just put it this way. In that great big arena of rednecks, I think that I was probably one of maybe about 10 people who knew who Amy Grant was. <laughs> and we were right next to the stage and Amy Grant came over to my side of the stage and I was hooping and hollering and waving and Amy Grant winked at me. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. Amy Grant winked at me. Holy cow, man. Well, I guess that's better than Charlie Daniels winking at you. <laughs> <laughs> my first year at scene, I got to go backstage at a Van Halen concert. Thanks to my buddy and yours, Jay Wells. And I've got Alex Van Halen's drumsticks right here next to my desk to prove it. And guess what? I had the drumsticks that belonged to Graham Edge, the late drummer of the Moody Blues. I was backstage with those guys. Was that a Jay Wells thing? Yes, it was. Good old Jay <laughs> Wells. <laughs> to tell our listeners my Jay Wells story, we went to this concert, Van Halen, and he happened to know everybody in rock music. He knew sure. all the roadies, all yeah. the tour managers. Jay collects drumsticks. And so he asked his buddy the road manager for van halen if he could get a set of alex's drumsticks and the tour manager said we've not unpacked them yet so i can't give you anything right now maybe later but i can get you one of eddie's guitars you're kidding me and jay wells said no thanks i'll wait on the sticks oh well <laughs> oh my <laughs> The guy walked off and I literally punched Jay in the arm. <laughs> I said, what are you thinking? To let our listeners know, Jay Wells is a longtime public relations individual in NASCAR, spent many years with the Skull Racing team and driver Harry Gant. That's where he got his big brick in NASCAR. And he got really interested in concerts. And he became an expert on those things and knew everybody. And he said, look, the way to get into where you want to go is just to join me. We'll go backstage, but make sure you bring some swag. The roadies like their swag. 
So I brought issues of seeing and illustrated to every concert I went to with Jay and I was passing them around backstage. And it was great to see those guys stuff them in their pockets so they could read them later on. Today, give me some Crowder and Mercy Me, Sidewalk Prophets, Zach Williams, Brandon Lake. That's my know. kind of music. Don't know any of them, Rick. I'm sorry. Well, I might have to introduce you. <laughs> <laughs> I posed this question to Dues, and I loved his answer because it is so classically Dues. It explains everything you need to know about his mentality. Here's the question, and it's one I could ask you also. Good music or good racing? You have to pick one. Now, which would you pick? Racing or music? I would pick, uh, Rick, I would pick music for one simple reason. I always loved racing. I love to see good races. I, I love to cover good races, no doubt about it. But there comes a time when you have to move on from racing. In other words, you have to move on from your job in racing. And Rick, I've learned one thing. Watching races and covering races, two different things you're not as immersed in racing as you are when you're writing about it and that makes a difference music no change it goes on and on no matter what you do or how old you are also if you pick good music that also means you don't have to do this podcast anymore <laughs> <laughs> let's not go that far yet so you can be all philosophical if you want to be <laughs> But if you pick good music, that means you don't have to do. Okay. All right. I see where your mindset is. I see where your heart is. Okay. I I got you. Well, that is what Deuce said also. He said that he would pick good music, but only because if he was ever stranded on a deserted island, he could always make a little music by pounding away on a couple of coconuts like they were bongo drums. <laughs> and you know what? I could absolutely see dudes doing that and being completely content with his lot in life. I was actually put in touch with dues by your friend and mine, Rick Minner, who was of course the longtime NASCAR writer for the Atlanta journal constitution. And of all the questions that Rick said that I should definitely ask dues about, he said that I had to ask about the purple carpeting in his toolbox. I want to hear this. So here's the story of the purple carpet in the toolbox. Dues was maybe 11 or 12 years old, and there is a hot and heavy poker game at Daddy Dues's garage there in Agawam, Massachusetts. And Dues is not only there, but he is basically the waiter. Get me a beer. So he goes and gets the beer, and they give him a dollar or two. And then a dollar or two more. And I'm sure that as the beer flowed, the tips got bigger. <laughs> no doubt. No doubt about it. Then they go to a local bar with dues in tow. He counts his money and it is over a hundred dollars. And mm. back in the late 1970s or so, whatever this would have been, that was a lot of money, especially for a kid that age. Especially for a kid age. $100 back then was a pretty fair amount for an adult. When I was 11 or 12 years old, if I had $5, I thought I was rich. I did too. I didn't have it for long because I headed to the nearest baseball card store and blew it on baseball cards. <laughs> <laughs>
So Dues is thinking that he is going to be living large off of his earnings. He's in the bar. He's playing pinball. And it is at that point when Mama Dues shows up. Uh-oh. And she has been trying to get in touch with Daddy Dues, asking where <laughs> he is at and asking where Baby Dues is at. <laughs> And just like that, she is standing in the doorway of the bar, just like you would see on Gunsmoke or some old West movie. She's been trying to track him down. She's been calling the garage and she is not happy. Dues and his dad drive home and mama is waiting on him. Dues heads upstairs with his cash money. He's thinking that he's gotten away with it. And then all of a sudden mama shows up in the doorway again of his bedroom and now she is after Deuce's ill-gotten gain. The fact that Deuce had worked for that money did not seem to matter to his mama. Well, mama, Deuce has got a right to be upset. Her son is at a poker game serving beer, and then he's at a bar. Now, no mama is going to be happy about seeing her 11 or 12 or 13-year-old son in that environment. <laughs> no wonder. <laughs> Well, she confiscates the money, all $100 of it, all more than $100 of it. And a week or so later, these delivery guys show up at the house and they start laying down purple carpet in the Duzneski household. <laughs> it doesn't take much for Duz to put two and two together. Hey, that was my money. <laughs> my money paid for that carpet. And he was like, you gotta be kidding me. So years later, when the house got remodeled, rather than throwing away that purple carpeting, Dews cut swatches out of it and lined his toolbox with it. Why not? It's got to be a memento of the $100 he didn't keep. After thinking about it for several years and almost moving south to see what he could do in big-time auto racing, Dews finally pulled the trigger in 1992. The same as me. He drove a junked out Ford Tempo. <laughs> you can't make this stuff up. All right. He drove a junked out Ford Tempo that he had salvaged out of the parking lot of a local, let's just call it the local gentleman's club, which reminds me of Bertha, the 1976 Chrysler Cordoba that I drove when I was trying to break into the sport. I did not, before you ask, I did not pick it up at a girly club, but I actually bought it scrapped for $200 with plans to turn it into a race car at the fender bender division at the Nashville fairgrounds racetrack. That car never made it to the racetrack. That was the kind of situation that I was in at the time. I bought a clunker car for $200 that had already been scrapped out basically. And I wound up driving it for the next two years. Well, you did buy a 76 Chrysler Cordova with the original Corinthian leather. And you're going to turn that into a race car? Come yes, on. That was the plan. <laughs> Dues was down here for a few months when he landed a job with Active Motorsports with Jimmy Horton driving. Now, let this be known here and forevermore. And this was something that he actually made an effort to emphasize. Dues was not Jimmy's crew chief at Talladega. That was Mike Hillman Sr.'s role. The wreck happens. And Dews actually hears Jimmy grunt as he goes over the wall. The spotter eventually comes on the radio and says that Jimmy's in the parking lot. So naturally the crew on pit road thinks that Jimmy's landed somewhere in the infield on the apron or whatever. And they go, 
Can he drive it in? No, he's out on Route 20. <laughs> that parking lot, Jimmy's girlfriend at the time hears this. She faints. Oh, really? Uh, I can imagine. Dues and another guy catch her. And this was only Dues' second Winston Cup race ever. But where he comes from, a big wreck means a big fight. So he's expecting to have to throw hands with somebody. <laughs> and it's at that point when the rest of the crew takes off running somewhere. He doesn't know where they're going, but they take off running. So he stays put. And then Mike Joy from CBS shows up with a microphone. And as it just so happens, Mike's first job in racing was at Riverside Park, where Dews got his start. So all of a sudden, Dews is on TV. And that, I believe, is where people got the impression that Dews was the crew chief. I think you are right about that. And I will say one thing. I'll bet Dews was not at a loss for words. Hey, race fans. John Dodson here from NASCAR Technical Institute. NASCAR Tech is open and enrolling, with classes starting every three to six weeks. In our 48-week automotive technology program, students learn everything from vehicle electronic technology to diagnostics and drivability. And as our exclusive educational provider for NASCAR, we offer a 15-week NASCAR elective, where students learn engines, fabrication, aerodynamics, pit crew essentials, and more. NASCAR Tech also offers 36-week welding and CNC machining training programs so you can choose the path that best fits your career goals. Ready to see how you can get started? Visit uti.edu slash NASCAR today. NASCAR Technical Institute prepares graduates to work as entry-level automotive service technicians. Some graduates who take NASCAR-specific electives also may have job opportunities in racing-related industries. NASCAR Tech is an educational institution and cannot guarantee employment or salary. This segment is brought to our listeners by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's racing show place. Steve, you and I have already established here on the show that with so many different storylines going into and coming out of the event, that the 1992 Hooters 500 was NASCAR's greatest race. A lot of other people join us in that conclusion, Rick. With that being said, I'm going to put this out there. If the 1992 Hooters 500 was first on the list of stories to be told, the 1993 Die Hard 500 at Talladega was a very close second. This was the first race for Robert Yates Racing after Davey Allison lost his life as the result of a helicopter crash in the infield at Talladega. Then there was Neil Bonnet's return to competition following his recuperation from an accident at Darlington more than three years earlier. And just the story of Neil's return would have been huge if it had ended there. But then he wrecks goes over on his lid and takes out a lengthy stretch of catch fencing, which caused a delay of more than an hour right. for repairs. Jimmy Horton goes over the wall between turns one and two. He walks away from the accident, but Stanley Smith isn't nearly as fortunate and very nearly loses his life as the result of that very same incident. Now, what happened to Jimmy took a lot of attention 
away from what happened to Stanley. Most of us in the media had no idea that he was that badly injured. But it turns out, among other injuries, he had a basal skull fracture. And he was in the hospital for 40 days before he was released. And, of course, that was the end of his very brief career. Finally, if ever a Dell Earnhardt win at Talladega was an afterthought, even as close as this one over Ernie Irvin was, this one was it. The results of the race, who won and lost the race, kind of gets lost in the shuffle of everything else that took place that day. You and I have both seen a lot of races over the years. Certainly, you've been in it longer than I have, and you've seen many, 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 many races over the years. And after a while, they do tend to kind of run together. Sure. But this one has always stood out to me. Just in general, before we dig into it a little bit, what do you remember about this weekend? I remember it being one of the busiest weekends seen ever had because we had so many stories breaking during the course of that race and even before the race that we had a real rush to try to gather everything up and put it into the paper. First, it was back at Talladega, Robert Yates' first race after losing Davey Allison, okay? Then you had Neil Bond coming back from his injury, which is another major story. Then you had Stanley Smith's near tragic accident and then you had, of course, Jimmy Horton flying over the wall. And then you had that small, infinitesimal distance of a finish between Dale Earnhardt and Ernie Irvin. Now, can you just imagine trying to compile all of that from one race and get it in the paper? It was maddening. Well, when it comes to it being Robert Yates' first race back after the loss of Davy, that's the kind of thing that you can kind of prepare for because you knew going in, that that right. was that team's first race back. Right. Also, you could prepare and write a story before the race that it was Neil's first race back. But then you had Neil going over on his lip. That's what made it more difficult. You couldn't just say Neil's back. Then he goes out there and flips that car like that. I mean, what do you do then? You have to include that. And that means you're not through writing about Neil Bonnet. Then you have Jimmy Horton, and you got to cover that. And that's right. a big story, a car going over the wall at a racetrack. And then you have the addition to that, which was Stanley Smith. Yes, absolutely. There was a lot of work to do during that race. So, Steve, let's talk about the loss of Davey and Robert Yates racing being back at Talladega. The first Winston Cup race after Davey died was at Pocono. And who can ever forget the side of Dale Earnhardt winning that race and then waving that 28 flag? And the crew coming out and praying on the start-finish line. With right. Him. But then came Talladega. The 28 car was back with Robbie Gordon behind the wheel. That was one thing, Steve. But then for that race to be at Talladega, the home track for not just Davey, but also Bobby and Donnie and Red Farmer, who was actually in the helicopter with Davey when it crashed, and Neil Bonnet, and finally the accident had taken place right there in the infield in the media parking lot. Tremendous irony in all of that, as you mentioned, Rick. And it would have been nice if Robert Yates' team with Robbie Gordon driving had been able to accomplish something at that race. That would have been a very emotional situation and something that most of us would have been thrilled to write about. But it was not to be. 
I mean, Robbie crashed very early in the race, and he finished 42nd, dead last. Not a very auspicious return for Robert Yates racing, but as they say, that's racing. Couple all of that with the fact that Bobby and Judy had lost another son, Clifford, less than a year before. And my heart hurts just speaking those words. I don't even know how they survived that state. How can you comprehend a father and a mother losing their two sons so closely apart, participating in the sport they all loved? That's hard, hard. And Neil Bonnet, he had not raced since April 1st, 1990, when he sustained head injuries in a multi-car crash at Darlington. He had been hurt behind the wheel, and he had raced hurt countless times over the years. He had not raced in three years, and he had built up a very solid resume as a broadcaster and show host. To this day, I consider him one of the best analysts to ever step foot in a broadcast booth. He was remarkably good, and I wish that Neil had decided to stick with that as his career. He had the chance to make a comeback at Talladega, and there he was upside down and i was on pit road taking pictures for the newspaper in north wilkesboro and i have this just very very vivid memory of seeing the red undercarriage of neil's car go flying by i had never seen anything like that from that kind of vantage point neil had an in-car camera that day and steve holy cow man that is one of the most dramatic in-car shots in nascar broadcast history hearing him breathing so heavily yeah. after that car came to a rest. I saw that same thing with the in-car camera. And I can tell you, I was somewhat worried because of that heavy breathing. Can you imagine somebody really gasping for air? I mean, in a near fatal situation, to me, that's what it sounded like. But fortunately, Neil wasn't hurt that badly. He was relatively unscathed. And here is the truly mind-boggling thing. He went to the broadcast booth and called the rest of that race. Exactly right. CBS was broadcasting the race that year. To add to this a little bit, Neil had held a press conference before the race in which he described, you know, how he'd come back from his injuries suffered at Darlington, which included a loss of memory, among other things. And to comment on that wreck just one more time, that wreck was started by Ernie Irvin, who caused a, maybe a 10-car pileup when he ran into Ken Schrader. And at that time, Ernie was 10 laps down to the field. So there was not a lot of love for Ernie after that particular race. Neil, though, had absolutely nothing against Ernie and said so on one of his television programs. So at the press conference, he wanted to show his memory was fine. And I remember him looking at me and looking at my friend Tom Higgins and saying, I'll show you my memories. Fine, there's Steve. There's Tom. They're here with us today. Felt kind of good about that. I really did. If it had been me and I had just wrecked like that, I would have been like, no, nah, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just ease on back to the house and take it easy for the rest of the day or week or month or whatever. <laughs> I certainly would have not gone back into work in the broadcast booth after going through something like that. But Steve, and I mean this with all my heart, I wish that he had stayed. Yeah. 
It was not long. It was not long after that accident that Neil had a conversation with Tom Higgins. And Tom was telling him, Neil, you don't have to drive a race car. Please stop. And Neil told him that he was really addicted to it. It's something that he just couldn't get out of his system. And he had to keep trying it whenever he could. And Tom said, well, I, I wish you wouldn't. And you know what? I think we all can say that today. We wish he wouldn't. This was July 1993, February of 1994. Neil lost his life while practicing for the Daytona 500. So Correct. that's one more story about this race. Jimmy Horton, if the sight of Neil's car flying past me was memorable, once he made it back around to the garage, I will never forget the sight of Jimmy standing there in the garage covered from head to toe <laughs> in that red Alabama clay dirt. <laughs> he probably didn't care one bit about that. Neil and Jimmy had flipped in the cup race, but Ernie Irvin and Richard Lassiter had also gone airborne during the Bush series race the day before. And sure enough, scene went to work and put together a package on cars lifting off the ground and what could be done about it that ran just a couple of weeks later. Well, that eventually led to Jack Rouse's creation of the roof flaps, which you now see fly off the roofs of cars as the car turns airborne. Try to keep it down. Steve Stanley Smith's accident and what happened to him. That was my first experience being at the track when somebody was so critically injured. How did you learn how to deal with that kind of thing? Well, Rick, this may sound cold, but I learned almost in my first year of racing that I was going to see some things that weren't going to be pleasant, but I had to accept that this went on in racing and I had a job to do. And if I was going to do my job, which was reporting on what did happen, I just had to more or less let emotions go away from me and do my job and be cold about it. I can remember more than once, Rick, being back in my motel room late at night after the race is over. I filed everything, and some of that was very unpleasant. Yeah, you feel drained emotionally, and that's when it all catches up to you, but not while you're doing your job. I did eventually have to learn how to deal with that, of course, and an enduring memory that I have of being involved in that sport, and sometimes, yes, the ugliness. A driver by the name of Gary Layton, was injured at Michigan during Bush series qualifying. I believe it was Gary's life was hanging in the balance and it was touch and go. As long as I live, I will never forget another reporter. And it's a well-known reporter actually made the statement. If he was going to die, he should go ahead and die. So they could make deadline. Holy crap. To this day, I cannot believe that anybody would be so depraved as to even think that much less say it out loud. And well, they were not kidding. No, I agree with you, Rick. That's not the way the media is supposed to behave. I'll just come out and say it. That is the wrong behavior and the wrong attitude. Steve, we better go on to the finish this race. My blood pressure. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, Gary did survive. So I hate that the person missed their deadline. The last lap was a thing of Talladega beauty. And Dale Earnhardt wins by five one thousandths of a second 
with Dale Jarrett, Kyle Petty, Mark Martin right behind them. That was Talladega at its best. Where the press box was in those days, we could not see the finish line because it was not below us like it was in most racetracks. It was way down almost the entrance of the first turn. So we didn't really see that type of finish from that press box. We had to be told about it. And we did get pictures showing that finish, and it was remarkable, just remarkable. Now, was that while the press box at Talladega was way up high, that big tower, or was yeah, that the yeah. new press box? No, that, that was the old one. It was stood up on a big tower, as you mentioned. But let me tell you something. When I said stood up, it was almost 90 degrees up there. You walked down the steps in that press box. You prayed to the Lord you didn't miss one step, because if you did, <laughs> You were rolling down a hill, brother. And the steps weren't, but maybe two or three inches wide, I remember. That's about it. <laughs> the new Talladega press box, I was never a fan of because it was almost at track level. And every time I ever sat down in it, I sat down in the back row yeah. and looked for an escape route. From that point on, when that new press box came around, a great deal of it just worked out of the media center in the infield. This is how soon after Davy's accident that things started to shake out with the 28 card. There was a very short three-paragraph news story in the July 29th, 1993 issue of Winston Cup scene that featured coverage of this event that said that Robert Yates Racing was interested in Ernie as a replacement for Davy. Well, scene was on the money that day because Robbie Gordon drove for Robert at Talladega. Then three races later, it was Lake Speed to do the next three. And by the Southern 500 at Darlington in early September, there was Ernie Irvin in the rubber gauge car. Hey, I'm Butch Hilton. This is Robin Pemberton. Hi, I'm Robbie Reiser. Hi, I'm Archie Candy. Hey, I'm Slugger Labby, and you're listening to the Scene Vault Podcast. Hello, Scene Vault fans. This is Brian from Speedway Screens, and if you're enough of a NASCAR historian to be listening to this podcast, there's a good chance a piece of the past you've been on the hunt for is in my shop. I'm constantly on the hunt for apparel and collectibles from all genres and eras of motorsports. So whether it be cup cars, dirt modifieds, dragsters, or monster trucks, I've probably got something for you. Check out my inventory at speedwaytsj.etsy.com and be sure to follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens for the newest items as soon as they drop and for a peek at what I keep for my own collection. As a special thank you to listeners of this show, just enter scene at checkout for 10% off. Speedwaytsj.etsy.com. That's speedwaytsj.etsy.com. This podcast has been brought to our listeners by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's Racing Showplace. I think that we have the gremlins ironed out with the distribution of this podcast. I hope, I hope, I hope so they've all been ironed out. <laughs> <laughs> so do I. It should be available now on all the major podcasting platforms, but just to make sure do go and make sure that you have subscribed to the podcast 
on iTunes or whatever podcast platform you listen to us on, make sure that you do that so that you don't miss out on any scene bought podcast goodness. So resubscribe and you won't miss anything. And Rick, this new platform means that we are available from more sources than ever before. Correct? Yes, sir. All right. Okay. All right. Cool. Good deal. How's it going? Yep. I think so. I think so. All right, man. Okay. I'll, I'll try Rick again on this. It was obviously him. Yeah. So right. I'll just say, are you there? <laughs> or something like that. All right. Sounds um, good, brother. All right. Take care Thank of yourself, you. brother. Anything else we need to talk about? It's not. No. Not that I know of. Okay. All right, man. All right. Take care. All right, bye.